Today's teaching text is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, again, uh, welcome to First Free. My name is Matt. If I haven't met you, uh, I serve as pastor here, and I'm glad to be with you in the new year. I'm glad to be together. Well, the, the baby changes everything is, is what we've titled this series, and, and having a baby changes everything. I mean, all parents know this, but new parents particularly first-time parents, know this best. And for the mother, of course, the changes begin early. Uh, Not just a growing stomach, but changes in appetite, changes in hormones and brain chemistry, changes in shoe size and hair growth and everything. Uh, I remember having our son, Shepard, about four and a half years ago, going to every single outlet in the apartment and putting those silly plastic safety plugs in there way in advance. We probably did it six months before he was even born. And of course, he can't crawl around for however long. But all those in there, rearranging the furniture. If you got sharp edges, you put you know the foam stuff on there. Um, I remember, because of my personality, spending countless hours online researching what's going to be the best stroller. We were living in New York City. We needed, you know, we were walking everywhere, needed the best stroller. And then how do I get the best possible deal on that stroller? Because I am from the Midwest. (laughs) Wanted to know what materials are safe. Do I need to get the organic cotton sheets? Uh, All this sort of stuff. Had to rearrange everything. And then, of course, a baby changes all your relationships. The way you have free time or don't have free time, who you interact with. You start to become friends with other parents, and you start to meet other parents at the school of your kids and things like that. And you might have to figure out, are both parents going to work? Is one going to stay home? Are you going to get a nanny? Are you going to do daycare? For Sarah and I, we decided to live on one income, which was not possible in New York City, so it changed where we lived. We moved uh, away 
from New York. And while this was true for us when we had our first son, and I'm sure it's going to happen again at the birth of our second child. Um, If you don't know, Sarah is pregnant. Uh, Just to make that official. It was very true for us. Um, It's, of course, extremely more true for the birth of God's son, for the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus changes everything. And and that's what we're going to be talking about for these next uh, six Sundays, but particularly with five topics. This is the season of epiphany, of sort of discovering who Jesus is in his life, in his teachings. And um, we're going to be discovering the way that the coming of Jesus into our world radically reorients everything about how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. Jesus becomes the new center of everything. And my hope and prayer, why I want to begin this series at the beginning of the year, my hope and prayer for my own life, for the life of our community, is that we become a church that is centered around Jesus, around the person, amen, the, the teachings, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. That he becomes the gravity the gravitational pull of our life together as we sort of rotate around him that we're all drawn in to Jesus at the center. That our shared love of Jesus, that our desire to be formed deeper into his image becomes the most true thing about our church. So for the next five weeks, I'm going to address uh, five shifts for becoming a Jesus-centered community. And they're adapted from a ministry, a movement called Jesus Collective, um, which is seeking to sort of resource those who are desiring to live a Jesus-centered Christianity. And these are the five shifts. They're the way that Jesus changes how we read scripture, which is what we'll be talking about today. Jesus changes the way we understand the gospel. Jesus changes the way we understand power. Jesus changes the way that we embrace the Holy Spirit and the way that we handle disagreements as a community. So that's what we're in for. And there'll be a sixth one that gets thrown in, but someone else is preaching on that, and I don't know what they're going to say yet. So I'm just going to talk about the five that I know about so far. So one of the biggest questions that we all ask at some point or another is what is God like? What is God like? In fact, uh, Sarah and I have this book that we read to our son, Shepherd, and that is the title. What is God like? And it begins like this. The author says, what is God like? That's a very big question. One that people from places all around the world have wondered about from the very beginning of time. And while nobody has seen all of God, because God is far too big for any of us to see fully, we can still know what God is like. 
Then the book goes on to describe God with all these uh, beautiful and biblical metaphors. God is like an eagle. God is like a shepherd. God is like et cetera, et cetera. But that question, what is God like, is really a question not just for kids, but one that we all need to ask ourselves. What is God like? And, you know, of course we might expect different answers from those who are practicing different religions, right? We'd expect something different from a Muslim, from a Hindi, from someone who practices animism or something else like that. We'd expect different answers about how they might describe God or the gods. What's problematic is when Christians describe what God is like and end up with very different portraits of what this God looks like. And what's even more problematic, I think, is that everyone can find a verse or two to back up that portrait they have of God. We have a long way to go in rehabilitating the mental picture that many Christians have in their heads of this God they're calling upon. In many cases, both in the West and, honestly, even in the global South, what many Christians mean when they talk about God is not a God who looks much like Jesus. Rather, it's, it's often a God who looks a little bit like Jesus, mixed with a whole lot of sort of whatever cultural ideas we might make up about the gods, or whichever random verses we can find to easily support whatever we want God to be like. For example, while Jesus repudiates violence and models co-suffering love for his disciples, many Christians in the West are captivated by portraits of a violent warrior god. Now, this God, of course, is always on their side when it comes to the sort of cultural battles and cultural wars. And with this God, you really can thrive on an us-versus-them paradigm. And again, you can find different verses in the Bible to back up your violent warrior God. For some, God looks like a tyrant king. He's punitive and judgmental, and and he needs a pound of flesh to pay for everything we do wrong. He's hovering over us with judgment, always there, but perhaps we wish he wasn't. And still for others, God is more like a distant father. This is someone who's abandoned us, and, and they're silent and far off. God's like a deadbeat dad or an absentee landlord. He's not really hovering over me with punishment because he's abandoned me altogether. Somehow he's still in charge of me, but he's certainly not in love with me. And then, of course, there's the God who fits right in with our lives of comfort and consumerism. God's like that genie that you can get to do whatever you want, as long as you do enough, or you're good enough, or you pray enough. Fairy godmother. And we might laugh, but in America, we love this God. 
Because most of us, myself included, a lot of times, prefers to live in the comfort of consumeristic lives. I don't want to be bothered by the tensions of racism, all the problems with gender and socioeconomic injustice. I'd prefer that salvation is just between me and God so it doesn't mack up and mess up everything else in my life. Now these views of God aren't just in the West. I know I'm being harsh on the West. Um, Adem Morney, a pastor in Ghana, he says this. He says, what about those of us in the global South? While we celebrate the rise of Christianity in this region, many on the ground can almost see a directly proportional increase in corruption in public and private business, a breakdown in family cohesion due to spiritual overreach and abuse, a lack of care for the needs of the poor and profligacy and brazen immorality in the lives of many clergy. He says, it is common to see a church in every street corner in a country like Ghana, his home. But while many may shout the name Jesus or God in worship, the attributes described to this Jesus make him look more like the animistic God, Econetti, than the Jesus of the Gospels. All of this leaves the secular-minded person to conclude that the Christian religion is just like any other human-made religion. Since these religious myths seem to be all made up to suit the perspective of each culture, perhaps God, if God really exists, is unknowable. After all, the Bible, read in a way that many Christians read it, supports the same violence and oppression as many other religious books. Religion, then, if this is the case, has to be treated as a private affair which shouldn't impinge in any way on public life as we all work towards the secular goals of tolerance for anything, except when what we're asked to tolerate doesn't sit well with secular values. And yet, deep down in our souls... Both the Christians and those of a secular bent continue to feel the need to be accepted, to be known, and to be understood. We yearn for our lives to have purpose and meaning. We desire to not feel ashamed, but to be ourselves in the company of people that accept us. We desire justice to be done. And we also desire to be treated with mercy when we're the ones who can't live up to the justice. We want meaningful work to be able to provide for life's needs, but we also desire not to be enslaved by our work or by those needs. We yearn for freedom, but when we see unbridled freedom, it almost always leads to chaos. So we still need a God, but which one? All people have a mental picture of God or gods in their head. Even those who claim not to have a God, right? An atheist still has a picture of which God they're saying no to. We all picture some sort of God. And the way that we picture this God impacts how we view ourselves 
and the relationships we have with others and the world. So what we think about God is extremely important. Uh, Brad Jerzak, he says this is kind of like a feedback loop. If you go to this picture of a slide, um, it's the idea, he says, that I create God in my own image, what I kind of think I would like God to be like, and then that image of God starts to form me more into that image I created. And it kind of keeps going in a circle until we're trapped in this loop. We're formed into that which we worship. If our God is violent and angry and withholding, little by little, we start to become like that. If our God is a stickler for the rules, you might notice in your parenting, something really big flares up when your kid breaks a rule. If our God is... Scarce. They just don't really have that much to share or give. We likely will become a person of scarcity. Yeah. Now, in the ancient Greco world, this is really interesting. So basically, in the first century Greco-Roman world, throwing unwanted babies into the garbage heap was actually the norm. It was a norm. This is a practice that's hard for us to fathom, of course, but it actually drew very little emotional anguish from its practitioners at the time. It wasn't like, oh no, I can't afford to feed this baby, so I'm going to throw it in a garbage heap. It was like, well, this is just what you do. And this is very much so unlike early Christians and Jews of their time, but ordinary Greco-Roman religion had no conception that all humans are made in the image of God and worth treasuring and preserving. In their religious conception, only the sort of emperor and the priests were considered sons of God. And so these assumptions of of what and who God looked like had real implications for everyday living. So here's my proposal to those of us who claim the name Christian. What is God like? May seem like a Sunday school answer, but God always looks like Jesus. This means that instead of viewing Jesus as the pleasant side of God... We should look at Jesus as the accurate and complete picture of what God looks like. That's what Paul's getting at in Colossians 1. That was read. Verse 15 says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see what God looks like, you look at Jesus, period. Yes, we can see aspects of what God is like all around us. And I'm really grateful for that. In nature, in people, um, in art, in literature, and of course, most fully in scripture. And we should seek and find God in all those places. But the Son is the complete image of the living God. 
The chapter goes on to say all this beautiful and profound truth about Christ. And then in verse 19 it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness. All of the fullness of who God is, is found in Jesus. Some people have this view that God is actually a bit bipolar. And when he's in a good mood, he looks like Jesus. When he's in not so much of a good mood, he looks like those verses, you know, those particular ones in the Old Testament, where he can seem quite mean, quite powerful, where he says, you know, kill everyone. Like, don't spare any of them. It can seem almost like God is playing this sort of good cop, bad cop thing, and Jesus gets to be the good cop. That's simply not true. Jesus shows us all the fullness of God. The problem for for many Christians, and I'll be honest, this was true for me for a long time. The problem is I thought Jesus was too good to be true. And so I needed to supplement him with some of those other images of God, some of those other portraits of God that I saw elsewhere, including in the scriptures that seemed to be in tension with Jesus' character. But Jesus can't really be that good. Like the way he treats people, God can't be that good. And so I'm going to kind of balance him out with some of these other pre-Jesus verses. For the secular person, perhaps the God that Christians have exposed you to makes you think the Christian God is, you know, just like the gods of most other religions, not worthy of two minutes of your time. Jesus doesn't just show us part of God, the nice parts of God. Jesus displays all the fullness of what God is like. And this proclamation that God always looks like Jesus, that Jesus is the fullness of God, has profound effects on how we read Scripture, especially the Hebrew Scriptures or what Christians call the Old Testament. I love Scripture. I believe it's all authoritative for my life and for the life of the church. I believe it's all divinely inspired by God. It's the primary place to go if we want to encounter Jesus. I love Scripture, but I don't worship Scripture. I hope you don't either. I love scripture, but I worship Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, it is Christ himself, and this is a quote you can put up, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him, but it is Christ himself. In other words, the capital W, Word of God, which is Jesus, changes how we view and interpret the lowercase w, Word of God, the Bible. And this is actually really good news. 
This is really good news. There's a story at the end of the Gospel of Luke that's become one of my favorite stories. Uh, It's in chapter 24, if you ever want to read it. Uh, It begins in verse 13. It's a story of these two disciples. Um, Perhaps they're friends, perhaps they're a couple. Uh, We only have the name of one of them, Cleopas. But they're on a long walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Uh, This is right after Jesus has been crucified, a couple days after. And it says that they're processing, they're talking about everything that had happened with Jesus. And you can imagine how, how sort of heartbroken they must be. They thought they found the Messiah, a savior for them and their people, Israel, And then they witnessed him being wrongly arrested, mocked, tortured, and murdered. And now they're on that long walk home with their dreams crushed. Well, they're walking just the two of them, and Jesus shows up and starts walking with them, it says. But they don't recognize him. He's walking with them, and he casually asks, so what are you guys talking about? And when he asks this, it says they stop. And they're kind of down, looking down at the ground. And the one who's named, Cleopas, starts explaining everything that had happened in Jerusalem. He explains about Jesus and how he was a powerful prophet in both word and deed. He explains how he was arrested and crucified. And he says that they had hoped Jesus would redeem Israel. Then Cleopas explains, now it's three days after the crucifixion, and he says, early this morning, some women, who we know, they went down to try and go care for the body, and they claimed that Jesus was alive, that they saw some angels, and nobody can find the body. This is what they're telling to Jesus. And then in verse 25, it says this, he, he being Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. The scriptures at this point are just the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in all the scriptures concerning himself. I've read the Old Testament. It doesn't say Jesus, son of Joseph, anywhere. It doesn't say Jesus from Bethlehem. It doesn't say Jesus the Christ. It doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. But he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus, their rabbi, taught them how to read scripture. He taught them how to see what a Christian is meant to see in those texts. In other words, Jesus becomes their hermeneutic. That means their their way of interpreting. He becomes their way of interpreting scripture. The story goes on that they invite this man, who they still don't know, by the way, is Jesus, to stay with them for the night. 
And Jesus says, sure, I'll stay with you. And um, while he's eating at their house, it says he breaks bread. He thanks God for it and he gives it to them. Very similar to the Last Supper. And in this communion-like moment, their eyes are opened and they realize it's Jesus. And then in the next verse it says he disappears. He leaves and goes on his way. And as soon as they realize it's him, we have this, this verse they famously say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus becomes the way they read the Hebrew scriptures. Here's a line I don't want us to miss, so I'll put it big on the screen. In a Jesus-centered community, God always looks like Jesus, and all scripture is properly read through him. Uh, Brad Jerzak, who I quoted earlier, he he says that in ancient Israel, um, an individual Jew would read and interpret the scriptures only with their rabbi. Uh, They would never go to the text without their rabbi. They would always go with their rabbi, and everyone had a rabbi they followed, and they would read their sacred texts in light of their rabbi's teachings and interpretations. He says the same thing is true for us today. When we go to the Hebrew scriptures, to the Old Testament, we do so in the light of our rabbi Jesus' teachings and interpretations. We have no business there without him. Okay? And once Jesus' disciples grasped the paradigm shifts produced by Jesus, they never viewed the Bible the same way again. We see this in all the New Testament writings. The way that they quote the Hebrew scriptures, the way they interact with these verses is profoundly different than it had ever been before. The disciples' views of God were permanently changed because Jesus became their primary way to understand God. And scripture became all about God as how they understood the way Jesus explained and modeled it to them. It's such a shift in paradigm that it could lead Paul to write something like, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You can see that there's this struggle to be faithful to Scripture and yet to read it differently in light of Jesus all over the letters of Paul. In fact, John Barclay, this uh, New Testament scholar and historian, he compares Paul to a lot of other Jewish thinkers of his age, and then he says this about Paul's elevation of Yahweh God's promises to Abraham above his covenant of circumcision or the law. John Barclay says, it was unnatural for anyone reared in the Jewish tradition to decenter the law to limit its role in history to an interlude. But that is what Paul does in Galatians 3 and 4. 
I think the only way that a trained Pharisee of that time, which is what Paul was, could conclude that the law was just a guardian until faith came was because he had caught a vision that Yahweh God was actually always like Jesus. We just weren't seeing him clearly. This means that Scripture, at this point only the books of the Old Testament, needed to be read differently so that both Jews and Gentiles now could be included in the people of God simply by trusting in Jesus. Perhaps we've gotten so used to that claim that it's not that radical, but it was in Paul's time. Another example of this, of how Paul begins to read Scripture differently, is found in Romans 12. This is where Paul is giving these instructions to these Roman house churches about how to respond to persecution and attack. And what he says is, in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And to support this, he quotes from the Old Testament book of Proverbs, uh, particularly chapter 25, verses 21, and he includes 22, which says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. It says, in doing so, um, you'll reap burning coals on their head, and uh, etc. But the, the point is, Paul's quoting this verse in defense of how the Romans should live, the Roman Christians. Paul is full well aware that there's another verse in Deuteronomy 19.21 that says, Show no pity. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Why doesn't Paul quote this verse? In how they should treat the persecutors. Do you know what they're doing to us? Do you know what they were doing to the Roman Christians back then? If anyone in the American church today would say, they're persecuting us, people just don't treat us fairly anymore, and saw what was happening to the Rome, and they want to quote this verse, by the way. They want to say, we're not in charge anymore in America, we need to take back what's rightfully ours. Paul, in talking to the Roman Christians, does not quote this verse. Did Paul know this verse? Absolutely, in all of his Jewish training. He brags about how much schooling he had in other verses. But Paul becomes convinced after encountering this vision of Jesus that knocks him off his horse and blinds him. He becomes convinced that God always looks like Jesus. And so he prioritizes, yeah, he prioritizes the portions of Scripture that reflect this revelation of who God is. And he says, church, live like that. Look, Paul doesn't get rid of Scripture. He's not trying to minimize it. He doesn't cut the portions he doesn't like out of the Bible. He simply refocuses his lenses where Jesus has shown it needs to be refocused. You have heard that it was said, but this is how Jesus teaches. Paul's reading of the Scripture isn't flat. In other words, not everywhere has the same weight. 
The Jesus portions trump everything else before or after them. Doesn't mean that the other passages of Scripture are useless. They just don't dictate the ethics that Paul teaches his churches to follow. Now, I realize this might be a new way of thinking about this for you. It might even rub you wrong. It might feel like I'm belittling Scripture. All I know is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and Jesus shows us the way to read Scripture. So how are you feeling right now? Are you offended? Are you confused? Apathetic? Does it seem like I'm downplaying the authority of Scripture? I hope not. I'm not trying to. How are you feeling? Are you relieved? Are you relieved? Are you wondering, can this actually be possible? Can can, can I read Scripture that way? Can I have a relationship with God that way? Can Jesus actually be the fullness of God? The most accurate and complete picture we have of the divine? No, not just the friendly, loving side of God, but the complete picture of what God is actually like. Well, whatever you're feeling, I invite you to sit in a bit of the discomfort of Jesus. The way that John describes him when he says early on in John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. What does that say about much of the Old Testament? But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. If God is, has been, and always will be like Jesus, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? One of the ways you can imagine the difference it makes is uh, when Jesus tells this story of a prodigal son in response to the Pharisees questioning him for eating and drinking with the wrong crowd. The picture Jesus paints is of a God who is already longing to embrace and celebrate us in whatever state we're in. A God whose love at least seems indiscriminate spreading even to those the world considers unworthy. If God has always been like this, then can that invigorate our church community to reconsider which people, who by virtue of their cultural, social, economic, political backgrounds, are unworthy of our attention? Imagine what the church's witness would be like if we lived like the Beatitudes, Jesus' teaching of how to live. If we were, as he asks us to be, perfect like our Father in heaven. Which, according to Jesus, in that description of what perfection is, looks like loving our enemies, looks like praying for those who persecute us. It looks like blessed are the poor in spirit. It looks just as Jesus did 
as those were persecuting him on the cross. So instead of viewing Jesus as the nice face of God, maybe we should take Jesus seriously and believe that this is what our Father looks like viewed head on. I think what will happen then is our ways will look less like our man-made cultural gods and be more like Jesus, the God who became flesh and tabernacled among us, experiencing all of our struggles, but not lifting a finger against his enemies. Can our church community enraptured by a vision of a loving God who accommodates our failures while desiring and working for what is best for us, become a place of rehabilitation and restoration instead of a place of retributive judgment and self-righteousness. I think it can, and I think we're well on our way. So what is God like? Well, on that road to Emmaus, those two disciples didn't recognize Jesus until he did something. Until he sat and ate with them, breaking bread for them. And all of a sudden, the God of the scriptures could be seen as the God named Jesus. The God who gives of himself, even his own body and blood, freely given. So that everyone who wants to come to the party can. Everyone who wants to come can proclaim that Jesus is Lord fall at his feet and experience the abundant life that he promised. What is God like? 